Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Extraordinary tales from around the globe and throughout history. I'm Dan Benson. When we think of mass poisonings, it's often in the context of cult leaders like Jim Jones, who was responsible for the deaths of 909 people at an event now known as the Jonestown Massacre. But arguably, the largest poisoning of people in all of recorded history was for profit, not ideology, and it is still going on at the time of this recording. In October 1924, chemical engineer Thomas Midgley held a press conference where he theatrically produced a container of liquid and washed his hands in it, declaring, quote, I'm not taking any chance whatever, nor would I, doing that every day, end quote. The chemical he ceremoniously washed his hands in was petrol, specifically a new formula of petrol containing the additive tetraethyl lead. People were concerned about the use of leaded petrol, and with good reason. There were stories going around. Just a week before the press conference, Ernest Olgert, an employee in the laboratory at a standard oil plant, had begun hallucinating to the point where he was running about the lab screaming at something only he could see. He would be restrained and hospitalised, but would pass away over the following weekend. And he wasn't the only one. At the same plant, located in New Jersey, four of Ernest's colleagues would also die and a further 35 were hospitalised. Between the fatalities and the hospitalisations, the total number came to 39 and that particular plant only had 49 employees. But Midgley was out to prove that leaded petrol was safe and Midgley was being disingenuous to say the very least. At the time of the press conference, he had recently returned from Florida, where he had spent several months recovering from lead poisoning. It was Midgley himself that introduced tetraethyl lead to petroleum in the early 20s as an octane booster, allowing engine compression to be raised substantially, improving performance and fuel economy. It was a godsend to the motor industry, but somewhat of a concern to scientists and the medical field. The effects of lead poisoning had been observed as far back as Roman times, where lead was used to make water pipes, and one of America's founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, had warned against the toxic effects of lead in the 18th century after experiencing lead palsy during his apprenticeship as a typesetter. And in Midgley's time, America's foremost authority on lead was Dr. Alice Hamilton, and she was concerned. Quote, where there is lead, some case of lead poisoning sooner or later develops, even under the strictest supervision. End quote. And she certainly didn't think it was wise to allow lead to spew forth into the air from ever-increasing numbers of motor vehicles. But you didn't need to be the foremost authority to make the observation that lead was dangerous. Those who worked at the New Jersey production line where the additive was made would frequently hallucinate insects and the lab would become known as the House of Butterflies, while the lab where tetraethyl lead was originally developed was given the name the Looney Gas Building. But with some clever advertising and a bit of corporate-sponsored science, people's fears were put to rest. 
the Ethel Corporation was formed and lead would be used around the world throughout most of the 20th century as an octane booster. And this would be bad news for everybody. Lead is believed to be responsible for around two-thirds of all unexplained intellectual disability. Globally, it's estimated that humanity has lost more than 800 million IQ points collectively. There is a correlation between lead exposure and violent crime, and by some estimates, lead has caused almost 100 million deaths. All this, despite there being alternatives to ethyl, one of which being another ethyl, ethyl alcohol, which is only dangerous if consumed in large quantities, like I did last night. <clears throat> it's worth mentioning that Thomas Midgley Jr. was also responsible for the creation of Freon, which kicked off the use of CFCs in refrigeration and ultimately the hole in the ozone layer. But that's another story for another day. Midgley would ultimately fall victim to one of his own inventions. After contracting polio, he devised an elaborate system of pulleys to assist him in and out of bed. On the 2nd of November 1944, at the age of 55, he became entangled in his device and asphyxiated, ending the story of the man who may very well be the leading contender for the title of person who poisoned the most people in history. I recall in the early to mid-1990s snippets from various news services about the development of non-lethal weapons of war by the United States military. One specific weapon I heard mention of was a handheld device that could blind enemy combatants, rendering them inoperative without actually killing them. I can't recall whether or not the damage was permanent or temporary, and I haven't bothered to look it up because nothing more ever came of it, and besides, I only mention it because it is loosely connected to this episode's topic. The Gay Bomb. Yes, you heard that correctly. The US military was toying with the idea of making a gay bomb. The overall idea of non-lethal weapons development was more about taking out insurgents who tend to hide among civilian populations, theoretically stopping the insurgents without killing the civilians. And so in 1994, Ohio-based Wright Laboratories began a project titled, quote, Harassing, Annoying and Bad Guy Identifying Chemicals for which they requested a six-year, $7.5 million grant. Some of the ideas being bounced around included bad breath bombs, flatulence bombs, and bombs containing chemicals that would attract stinging insects. But the most interesting idea was to look for a pheromone that could be put in a warhead and fired or dropped upon enemy positions with the effect of making the combatants attracted to one another. If you're younger than me, you need to bear in mind that when the idea was first proposed, military forces were almost an exclusively male domain, and it was only a very new concept at the time to allow homosexuals into the armed forces. Though fairly consistently making up around 15% of the population, it's presumable that there were plenty of gay combatants that had just lied about their sexual orientation, but the US military had just begun ushering in the idea of gay people joining up with the infamous Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, issued in December 1993. 
The idea being that you could join up as long as you stayed in the closet. But up until September 2011, you couldn't actually be openly gay or lesbian. And with that history lesson out of the way, let's get back to the gay bomb. The proposal for the gay bomb was submitted to the National Academy of Sciences in 2002. It was definitely being taken seriously as an idea. And the Wright Lab would eventually win the Ig Nobel Prize in 2007, an award ceremony where prizes are given using similar categories to the Nobel Prize, but for discoveries that, quote, cannot or should not be reproduced. The creators of the gay bomb did not attend the award ceremony, nor did they send anyone to accept the award in their stead. And the multi-million dollar grant produced absolutely nothing and we still live in a world without gay bombs, or very little else in the way of non-lethal weapons, except for mace and stun guns, which already existed anyway. I'm not too certain how this was all supposed to work. I can only assume that the chemical cocktail would also contain a powerful aphrodisiac. I can only speak for myself, but as a heterosexual that works in an industry dominated by women, I seem to be able to get through my day without forgetting the tasks at hand and throwing myself at them. And the two gay guys that work there don't appear to be overly distracted by one another. But if the gay bomb had come to fruition, and I promised myself I wouldn't say this, but I can't resist, it would add a whole new meaning to the slogan, Make Love, Not War. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched, and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care. Catch ya.